It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Spellman. Hello, David. Good morning. And, of course, the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. The solution to the problem we're discussing today, massive stock buybacks by major corporations, is through Congress, which means get a copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, CapitalHillCitizen.com, and read it so you can become a Capitol Hill Citizen and recover Congress from the grip of the corporatists. That's right, Ralph. Last week, we spoke to Wall Street Journal reporter Gretchen Morganson about private equity pirates, those plunderers who take over companies, saddle them with debt, cut the workforce, then sell off the pieces of the company for their own profit. This week, we jumped back into the Wall Street muck with William Lazonic, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Professor Lazonic is an expert on the corporate strategies behind the maximizing shareholder value in the form of stock buybacks, which he calls essentially a license to loot. How can we confront predatory value extraction and put in place social institutions that support sustainable prosperity? We look forward to the whole hour with Professor Lazonic on that. And as always, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's board another Wall Street pirate ship. David? William Lazonic is a professor emeritus of economics at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. His recent works include Predatory Value Extraction, How the Looting of the Business Corporation Became the U.S. Norm, and How Sustainable Prosperity Can Be Restored, and the forthcoming book, Investing in Innovation, Confronting Predatory Value Extraction in the U.S. Corporation. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Professor William Lazonic. Well, great. It's good to be here again. Welcome back, Bill. Well, we want to tap into your enormous knowledge on stock buybacks, trillions of dollars in the last decade by large corporations like Apple. And you wrote the groundbreaking article on stock buybacks for the Harvard Business Review, which created the field of inquiry that we're now going to discuss. People should know that until 1982, under Ronald Reagan, predictably, Stock buybacks were considered, with very few exceptions, by the Securities Exchange Commission as stock manipulation and prohibited. It would be considered stock price manipulation by the offices of the corporation. After 1982, it was open sesame. There were no limits, no conditions for stock buybacks. And huge amounts of your money, people are going into these unproductive stock buybacks, as Bill will point out in some detail. But before you think this is some abstract corporate maneuver, when Apple Corporation, which sells you all those iPhones and computers, announced a few days ago that they had so much money and profits that they were going to buy back $90 billion of their stock in the coming year, that's with a B, that is more than the combined regulatory budgets for two years of all the health and safety agencies of the U.S. government. When Tim Cook, the CEO, announced that, that basically was a message to you because that's your money. That's the excess that you paid for overpriced computers and iPhones by Apple. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to invest it, whether to invest it, 
They didn't want to apply it to their pension funds, worker salaries, environmental recycling. They decided to buy back their stock. This is where you come in, Bill Lazenick. Tell us about stock buybacks and their motivation. Okay, so let me just start with what you mentioned, the rule by the SEC in 1982. It's called Rule 10B18, which was adopted under the radar in November 1982, which basically said that companies can do a massive amount of buybacks without being charged with manipulation. In fact, it's a safe harbor. So if you, there are some rules about it, but they're so generous in terms of the amount of buybacks you can do on any trading day that it's basically, I call it a license to loot. I mean, Apple, which I'll get to in some more detail later, but it's by far the largest repurchaser of stock. And depending on when you look at the measure of how much it can do to stay within the safe harbor, about a year ago, I haven't looked at it recently, it was about four and a half billion per day, day after day after day, <laughs> manipulating the stock market. Many companies, it's like Microsoft, Oracle, which are big repurchasers, Cisco, it's hundreds of millions a day, but it's day after day after day. Now, we also don't know the exact days on which buybacks are being done. There's just a SEC rulings that try to have more disclosure but they don't go that far to actually tell us when buybacks are being done. But I, ultimately, I don't. it's not really an issue of disclosure. It's an issue of allowing corporate executives to allocate resources this way, which is basically looting the company. I call Rule 10B18 a license to loot. Now, before its passage in 1982, the stock buybacks were not inherently illegal, but the SEC was struggling with trying to figure out what kind of rule they should have in order to put a limit on them. And they had some previous proposals, I won't go into the details, that were more somewhat more stringent, but still would have been quite expansive if it had been adopted. And the one that was adopted was even more expansive, more permissive. And in fact, they didn't even have public comment on Rule 10B18 because they said things that have been proposed before had been more restrictive to business. So, so no need to have a public comment. Everybody would agree with this, which is a kind of weird way to look at it. It also was a result of the lawyers, people like Stanley Sporkin, who was at the SEC, being replaced in terms of the regulation at the SEC by economists and people from Wall Street and particularly at that point, Chicago economists. So it's a directly came out of Chicago economics. It's all part and parcel of the rise of trading on Wall Street, derivatives, lots of other things, including what you're talking about before with Gretchen Morkins and private equity. It's, it's all part of the same deregulation process. The impact on America, listeners, yeah. is these stock buybacks represent massive disinvestment by these companies in productive outlets around the country. Here's a stunning example. It stunned me when I heard about it. Bill, for these companies, the leading stock buy, buy companies, if you add up their profits and then you add up the stock buybacks and their dividends, sometimes their entire net income, their entire net income is allocated to stock buybacks and dividends or even more than their entire income. They go into debt sometimes to buy back the stock. That's right. That's right. Tell us about the disinvestment, which you've yeah. written about. Yeah. Definite consequences on workers, productivity, innovation, laid out. Okay, so the companies that do most of the buybacks are actually companies that have in the past have been successful. 
like Apple, Cisco, and others that have huge profits. So unlike what Gretchen Morkinson was talking about private equity, they're often companies that don't have a lot of profits and they squeeze more out. These often do. And they are often, as in the case of Apple, Cisco, Intel, many other companies, in areas which are critical technologies, not just important for employment, which they are. Now, traditionally, a publicly listed company would have shareholders who, by the way, just buy and sell shares on the market. They do, I don't call them investors. They do not invest in companies. They just buy and sell shares on the market. And for their savings, as, as a, a yield on their savings, if the company can afford it, they can get a dividend. The dividends are not uncommon. Sh shares are not guaranteed. They're also not legally required, but they're, they're the practice and to have even dividends, but they are not guaranteed. But in fact, over time, companies like to maintain the dividend, don't like to cut the dividend. So shareholders who are holding shares for yield on their stock can get a dividend. Okay. Now, if those dividends are too high, the earnings out of which dividends will be paid will eventually disappear because the company will not be using a portion of its profits to reinvest in the company. And the most important, really the foundation of reinvestment in a company that has been successful, that has profits, is reinvesting those profits. And in fact, many of the companies like Apple, Intel, others, for a long a period of time in their history, before they start doing buybacks, they didn't even pay dividends. They just reinvested what I call retained and reinvested their, their money. And that's how they got to be where they are. But at some point, people said, hey, there's a big pot of gold there. Let's go after it. And this has been enabled by the SEC and basically by the rules of the game. Now, what happens is different in different industries, different companies, but one industry we focused on is the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical companies have long argued, this is since the 1980s, that they need high drug prices because that gives them the extra profit that they can accelerate innovation and we get more drug innovation and this is good. So they had a successful drug now they're going to use their capabilities to invest in more successful drugs. There's a certain logic to that if, in fact, that's what they actually do, but they don't. The American companies in particular, Pfizer, Merck, and others, Johnson & Johnson, they tend to use a huge proportion of their profits, not just for dividends, but on top of dividends for buybacks. And for over periods of time, let's say over periods of a decade, you often find for some companies like Merck and Pfizer that they've done not just 100% of their profits on dividends and buybacks, but 200%. So what are they doing? They're taking on debt. They're actually downsizing the labor force. So I call this downsize and distribute. They're downsizing the labor force, distributing more to shareholders. There's investment in R&D, but there's not the commitment to developing the new drugs that they need to make. And in fact, they tend to not to be innovative in the past. What they tend up doing is using their high stock price to acquire other companies and then milking, which have lucrative drugs on the market, milking them dry. So that's how it worked in that sector. Of course, Ralph, we talked a lot about Boeing and Boeing spent $43 billion on buybacks between January 2013 and March the first week of March of 2019, before the second Boeing 737 MAX crash, just pumping up its stock price. In fact, its stock price hit a record on March 1st, 2019. We know what happened after that, unfortunately. But that was a case of companies, really a company doing what other companies were doing and just using buybacks to pump up its stock price. So some of our listeners may want to know the answer to this question. 
The reason for stock buybacks given by these corporate executives is that it will increase the value of the shares because they're withdrawing the supply of shares by buying them back, and there are fewer shares, and the price is supposed to go up. Of course, the executives benefit from their the value of their stock options go up. But the record isn't that clear. Apple has spent over $450 billion on stock buybacks, but its stock appreciation preceded that. The most of its stock appreciation hasn't done all that spectacularly in the last five years in terms of stock. What does the record show, Bill? Well, there have been studies, and, and you know, over the long run, they do not pay off. <laughs> but that's actually not my concern because I think I don't want the stock market to be the source of income for people who, you know, who are making it from buybacks in any case. And what it does mean is that those the reason it doesn't pay off is ultimately those companies do not invest in new rounds of innovation, do not treat their workers well, and so they don't get the same productivity out of their workers that they could. And in fact, they are putting people at the top of the company who actually have just an interest in getting the stock price up and often don't have the incentive, never mind, and even the ability to invest in innovation, which is not an easy thing to do. Now, I might just say there's four ways, basically, that the stock price gets pumped up. I call it the buyback process when companies do buybacks. Ralph, you mentioned that Apple had uh, announced that it was going to buy $90 billion of its shares. You'll see it in, you know, it's a statement. It doesn't have to buy those shares. It's just announcing that to the public that the board has authorized executives anytime they wish, any particular days, without us even knowing it, doing $3 billion or $4 billion or whatever they're going to do. But they have the authorization to do that. When that authorization is announced, the stock price usually gets a bump. Some studies have shown two or 3%. Okay, then when they actually do the buybacks, this is the second step, by the laws of supply and demand, they're going into the market, they're creating a demand for the stock that wasn't there, and that helps to pump up the stock price. The third part of the process is that people watching the stock price, even if they don't know that they're doing buybacks, they start seeing Apple's stock price rising. And so there's speculation on that momentum. And so you then get an additional increase in, in the stock price to, through that speculation. And then finally, when the quarterly report comes out or the annual report, and they report how much buybacks they did, and they report their earnings per share, the earnings per share are going to be higher, even if their earnings are not higher, sometimes even if their earnings are lower, and you're going to get an additional bump to the stock price. Now, that will not last. And in fact, what happens, and this is what happened with Apple, once you start getting on this kind of vicious circle of, of trying to pump up your stock price and keep your stock price up with buybacks, you have to do more and more and more. Because if you do less, you're announcing you're going to do less, the stock price will go down, you don't go in and give it this bump. The other side of that, there's three things that, that, that drive stock prices. Two of them I mentioned in the buyback process, speculation, manipulation. Okay, so people speculate that stocks are going to go higher, but people actually manipulate them to go higher. They can do this with buybacks. They can also do it with very kinds of rumors and things like this. The other thing, but the most important thing that drives stock prices that where everybody can potentially gain is innovation. And that's how these companies got to be where they are. So what gets sacrificed is innovation. Now, let's, uh, if you want, I can talk a bit about Apple as a particular case, because, okay, we know what Apple sells. And I have all kinds of Apple products you know, I sort of in their ecosystem here, right in front of me, I have an iPad, iPhone, a watch and a computer. Okay, so I'm happy with the Apple products. 
probably paid more than I needed to pay in terms of some normal profit they would make, but that's the issue. But now they have those profits. The question is, what are they going to do with them? Well, I wrote an open letter to Tim Cook in Harvard Business Review in October of 2014 when Carl Icahn, we all all know him, was making a run at Apple. He had bought $3.6 billion of Apple shares on the market. Not one cent went to Apple. And he started demanding that Apple do $150 billion worth of buybacks. And I, first of all, wrote a critique of this and said, because Apple was calling its program, which does buybacks and dividends, its capital return program. And I said, return capital to whom? The only time Apple ever went to the public stock market to get money was in its IPO in 1980. When initial public offering, it got $97 million. Anybody who has held the stock since then, if there is anybody, would not want to see them doing buybacks and giving it away to those people who had just bought the stock last year and want to sell it, which is what Icon did. It's quite clear that Apple has a transactional monopolistic position in spite of Samsung. They haven't really created much in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, they're still lunching off Steve Jobs' innovations. So I know some people are saying stock buybacks. Let me run you through a quick series of questions. Apple goes in and it buys its own stock, and it does so presumably in the open stock market that people use. They then get, let's say, a million shares back on a particular purchase. Where does that go? That's the first quick question. Where do those shares go when Apple executives buy them back? Okay, in in Apple's case, they retire them. Companies can choose, although it's subject sometimes to different state laws, but companies can choose to either put them in the treasury and then they might reissue them at some point, or they can choose to retire them. Apple retires them. There's really not much of a difference because as long as they're within their authorization, which, you know, they can issue new shares to give to employees. I mean, I've calculated for Apple that since it started doing stock buybacks in 2013, by the way, I just should mention that between 1985 and 1997, when Steve Jobs was not at Apple, they did all kinds of buybacks and dividends and novels drove themselves into bankruptcy. Jobs came back and turned Apple around, the iPhone, or the iPod, the iPhone, et cetera. And that's where they got to where they are, as you said. When you say they retire, what does that mean? They've paid millions and millions of dollars for this stock. Yeah, they just, they just cancel, they cancel those shares, that's all. What do the shareholders have to say about this? I mean, that's real money oh, yeah. and they okay. just burn well, it, you're saying. Okay, okay. so what, what do the shareholders have to say? The shareholders, first of all, need to be educated. <laughs> but because Apple keeps making money and Apple started you know, in 2012, started paying dividends again. So if I was a shareholder in Apple, I'm not, I would not want them to do buybacks. I want them, would want them to actually invest, keep the money in Apple and put it in, you know, there's a lot of people who argue, well, you know, that money goes through the markets and and goes into new companies, et cetera. That's a bunch of garbage. It goes actually to the people at the top. It's, a, I would argue, one of the most important sources of income inequality and the power of the private equity, you know, their money. It's basically going to the top. If Apple just kept that money and ran itself as a bank, by the way, it's $592 billion that they've done since October of 2012, fiscal 2013, that money would go through the economy. They would just be allocating it to various types of securities and And they could take a portion of that money and put it into new businesses. And that's one of the things that is surprising about Apple, because 
there are people on Apple's board who have knowledge of critical businesses to which Apple could allocate some of that money. The longest serving board member on Apple's board is a guy named Arthur Levinson, who was the CEO of and chairman of Genentech for a long time. Now he's the head of Calico, which is Alphabet's unlisted biopharma company. Now, Genentech was protected by the stock market because it's owned by Roach, partially and then wholly over the last 15 years. The Swiss company, which is not financialized, which does not itself do buybacks. But here he is sitting on the board and he doesn't say a word about how Apple could have invested some of that money in related industries that he knows about, like diagnostics, et cetera, software for the pharmaceutical industry. The second longest serving board member is more, even more egregious, is Al Gore. He's been there since 2003. We know why he's there because <laughs> he didn't become president, but he's been there for 2003. 2006 is his Oscar-winning movie comes out, An Inconvenient Truth. But the inconvenient truth is that Gore is sitting there saying nothing while they did $590 billion of buybacks. So why isn't he saying that Apple should put some of this money into companies that are investing in clean energy, new technologies? One of the things that Apple, I mentioned Intel, that Apple could have invested in once its iPhone took off after it was launched in 2007, and then was clearly a huge success by 2010. And a suggestion was made to them in an article by an industrial journalist that they should build a fab. They should fabricate their own chips. They didn't do that. Now, the reason, one reason why the Taiwanese company TSMC is so powerful and why Samsung Electronics is also so powerful as chip fabricators is because first they use Samsung and then TSMC to fabricate the high-end chips for all the Apple phones. So that has actually geopolitical implications. Now, to give you an idea, in just the magnitude of buybacks relative to what you would need to invest in a fab, in 2021, because of all the chip wars that were going on, TSMC and Samsung made commitments to build fabs in the United States and TSMC entirely to produce chips for Apple in the United States. And the announcement of their investment, which would go on over many, many years, for those state-of-the-art fabs, the highest-end fabs, was $27 billion. It Subsequently, there was some more money on that. But in that one year, Apple's buybacks were three times that amount, the buybacks, just the manipulated stock price. These magnitudes are, are they're mind-blowing. And now Apple's off the charts on this, but that's that's what's happening. There's something crazy about here. Yeah. Bill, we're talking with Bill Lazonic, who broke the whole field open of stock buybacks in his now famous article in the Harvard Business Review. Let me laser in on something. Let's say today Apple buys back a billion dollars of its stock and then tomorrow retires it. Now, it's paid a billion dollars of shareholder money. When it retires it, it burns it. That could be called larceny in other contexts. What is the situation with the SEC on this kind of thing? Right. And what about the fiduciary duty of the governors of Apple to preserve the value of its shareholder stock? I mean, this this retirement bet needs more attention. Can you, well, can that, you give it, us some light on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, in my view, it's, even if they kept it, you know, the stock in the treasury, it's basically they're just manipulating the market. I mean, it would just sit in yeah, the Yeah, but they can always use it for stock options 
that not really doesn't make a difference because they just issue new shares within their authorization because they they do. I mean, I, I have the calculations since they've been doing buybacks. They've issued for mainly for stock based pay about one point five trillion shares, <laughs> and they bought back about ten point six trillion, about seven times as much. I mean, the the amounts that they're buying back are. I mean, it, in twenty twenty two, it was five hundred. And 69 a million or you know yeah but bill go back to my point when you buy back shares and you put them in the treasury they're still alive they can be used for stock options or whatever but when you retire a billion dollars worth of stock buybacks you're in effect burning the money there's nothing left yeah but you burn the money anyway i mean yeah you could go sell those shares on the market but you could issue new shares to sell in the market. No, I don't think that's really what the issue is. The issue is much more allowing companies to do buybacks. I mean, and this Rule 10b-18 adopted in 1982 was never vetted in Congress. There is now actually a proposed legislation from Senator Tammy Baldwin, which has been around since 2018. It's also been introduced in the House a few times called the Reward Work Act, which would rescind Rule 10b-18. If you just recognize that now... You know, 41 years ago, the SEC made a very stupid decision rather than to call buybacks manipulation to enable buybacks to give companies this license to loot. You would just go and reverse that decision. And that's what it calls for. Then the SEC would have to grapple with the issue of can companies do buybacks and how much can do and at what point is manipulation. So, but basically they've got around that and it's become so normalized that everybody not only accepts the manipulation, but cheerleads the manipulation. What we're talking about is an increasing size of our economy where companies are making money from money and not making money from producing innovative products or simply producing productive assets for the benefit of the people and their livelihoods. That's what we're talking about, and that's what you've written about. We've been talking with Bill Lozanik, who is an emeritus professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts, and now is with the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Tell us some of this new economic thinking. Well, yeah, now that's a whole other story because basically a lot of this is enabled by bad economics. And most of economics is uh, that's taught in, basically it's been taught for decades and decades and decades is, is just bad economics because it's what I call the myth of the market economy. We love markets. We love to be able to buy things, change jobs, et cetera, but markets do not drive the economy. It's organizations that drive the economy and they can drive the economy up, but they can also drive the economy down. And of course, you know that very well when you launch your, your own career in this area by going after General Motors. And in fact, the ideology that enables buybacks, that makes a lot of people, including economists, say, oh, they're just fine. The money's just going to the economy. Is this what I call the myth of the market economy, that the way in which you get capital formation in the economy is just by money zipping around. But it doesn't work that way. The money has to stop somewhere. It has to employ people in sophisticated industries. It has to employ people for decades, even in non-sophisticated industries, if people are going to have a decent standard of living. They can't be changing jobs every day or even every year. They have to have stable employment. And when corporations operate, you know, to do more good than harm, 
that's one of the things that they can do is that they can give people stable employment, people can learn within these organizations, and that's where the innovation comes from. I also would not argue that the profits that organizations are shareholders' money because the value is created by the people employed in that. The value is also created by a lot of the, the tax money that we pay that goes through government agencies into infrastructure and developing human capabilities through the education system, et cetera. So there's a lot of claims on profits that could be made that aren't being made by workers and taxpayers that are now just through the ideology that comes out of economics, neoclassical economics, mainstream economics, the economics of Larry Summers, to name one, but it's also the economics of Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz, is basically one in which the markets are just imperfect. It's not that the markets are imperfect, it's that the organizations that we have all this power and in some ways have to have the power in order to employ people and make these investments, they're abusing that power. And that's what I go after, the abuse of power. And so I also show the good side of that is how these organizations actually get built up over time and how they can create stable employment, higher incomes, and a win-win situation where actually shareholders typically gain as well. And that's when innovation is driving their growth because they tend to employ people more, the people are doing the learning, they keep them, they generate the productivity out of which they can get paid. It's a virtuous circle rather than a vicious circle. And so that's what I look at is how you go from one to the other. And buybacks are a big part of going from innovation to financialization, from retaining and investing to downsize and distribute, from more trend towards somewhat more equality to more income inequality. And your case study on Cisco Systems, when it started, broke new ground, was a world leader. Then it started doing stock buybacks, and it retarded itself. So now it's a very humdrum company, not known for much innovation. Can you summarize the history here of Cisco yes. and how it emulated itself? Yeah. Well, so so first of all, you know, it started by some people at Stanford in 1984, and or who worked at Stanford and got some venture backing in 1987 and then went public in 1990 with about 250 people. That was before that, and it was doing internet working. It was before, you know, the internet was commercialized, which was in 1993 when the government, which invested in the internet, commercialized it. And Cisco was positioned to take advantage of that opportunity. And it did better than a lot of other companies that were doing networking, trying to network computers because it had written software for all the different protocols. So it was the most successful in doing this. And then it grew very rapidly in the, the 1990s from 250 people in 1990 to about 34, 35,000 people a decade later. And in March of 2000 had the highest market capitalization in the world. Now at that point, there had been a huge amount of innovation and then speculation on top of that driving up its stock price. But then the internet boom turned to bust. Actually, Cisco did not lose that much revenue because uh, the enterprise networking still stayed stable. It was more in the, the service providers who lost revenue. And, but stock price within about a year, a year and a half, went down to about 15% of its peak. Uh, so at that point, right after 9-11, actually, when the stock markets were open, Cisco came in and started buying back its stock, and it's never stopped since then. So it spent about 100% of its profits since about October 2002 to the present buying back its stock. And then uh, actually, I think you demanded that they pay some dividends at some point, Ralph, but a decade ago, and they started paying dividends, which is what they could legitimately pay. 
but they do vastly more buybacks than, than dividends. And now they're twice as big as they were when they started doing buybacks because that whole industry has grown, but they're not an innovative company. Actually, one of the companies that was inside Cisco from about 2008, which then was outside Cisco in 2011, is Zoom, this medium on which we're talking right now. A guy named Eric Guan, who was working for Cisco WebEx, took 40 engineers and went and started another company because he couldn't do the innovation inside Cisco. And there's actually lots of other stories about this. And so what it is becomes a problem of is not just the fact that they're spending all this money on buybacks, because they still have lots of profits, but that they have a guy named John Chambers who was the CEO when they grew very quickly in the late 90s. And he did it by actually not doing any manufacturing within Cisco and also by outsourcing the distribution of the boxes, basically, to what called value-added resellers. And so once they got into the 2000s, if they were going, and they had the capability to do this, go into higher value-added products for service providers, much higher quality equipment that requires lots more engineers working after the sales, et cetera, and in sales, then they would have had to move to a different structure. They would have had to actually manufacture a lot of their own products. But rather than do that, they made some moves toward that. But rather than do that, once they started doing buybacks, they didn't solve those structural problems of becoming a major provider of service equipment to the global economy. So they could have moved either within Cisco or setting up a subsidiary company into this higher quality equipment. Meanwhile, companies that tried to emulate Cisco, particularly Lucent and Nortel's Canadian, but had a big footprint in the, in the US, they destroyed themselves trying to do that. So the, the result is that the United States does not have leading capabilities anymore in 5G, internet of things, in high level equipment. The company that Cisco could have been is Huawei, the Chinese company, which by the way is not really controlled by the Chinese government anyway, more than US companies are controlled, these companies are controlled by the US government. It's a company that actually is not listed on the stock market that reinvested and developed up the highest quality equipment in the world. And the other companies that are competing with Cisco are Ericsson, which was never very financialized, was always reinvesting. It's Nokia, the Finnish company, which has a different story. It's, it actually has uh, equipment from Siemens, the infrastructure equipment that it's selling on the market. But the United States is out of this because of Cisco. And so you have a company, nobody sees Cisco as being innovative. It makes lots of money. It has about 85,000 employees. It has about you know $55 billion worth of revenues, but it's not doing things that it could have done. And it was one of the few companies that was positioned to actually lead the United States into being a leader in infrastructure equipment for the, the mobile revolution, radio base stations, et cetera. And as I said, this is repeated in other industries, in the semiconductors, in, in pharmaceuticals, in aviation. It's likely to be repeated. We're doing research on this in electric vehicles. China is getting way ahead now in electric vehicles partly because they also had the good sense to allow Tesla to invest in China, the first wholly owned foreign company, auto company, to be able to invest in China. Tesla is going to end up exporting way more of its cars from China than, than it does from the United States. That's why you called your article Cisco Systems, from innovation to financialization. That's what happened to Boeing, went from engineering to financialization, pumping up its stock price began to distort the entire orientation of the company's purpose. And you can see it in the stagnation of 
Boeing's airplanes and its disregard for safety practices and the crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia. And you can see it in the Cisco situation. You see it everywhere. And that's one reason why these foreign countries are eating our lunch. They haven't yet fallen prey to looking at their companies and saying what we're most interested in is the stock price and the way to do it is through buybacks. And I should just point out that it's not because the United States does not have the capability to do these things. The capability is in the wrong hands and it's being wasted and, and destroyed. So it's not simply the amount of money that's making people rich, but those people who are getting rich are actually getting rich by helping to destroy the industrial base of the United States, including the middle class. That's the central point of your research. Yeah, absolutely. Professor Lazonic, I wanted to ask you about that Rule 10B18. Do you see, and maybe this is also a question for Ralph, any political will? I mean, is there any chance that this could be changed? Because it seems like there's tremendous power behind it not being changed. Well, here's the problem. Like addic any addiction, <laughs> there would be huge withdrawal symptoms. And the withdrawal symptom might be the crash of the stock market. So, you know, Ralph mentioned this article I published in 2014 in Harvard Business Review, Profits of the Prosperity Stock Buybacks Manipulate the Market and Lead Most Americans Worth Off, which is basically the message. A big fan of that article was Joe Biden. And I met with him a couple of times in 2015 when he was vice president. And he was talking about the problem of buybacks and actually wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in September of 2016 about all this problem. It's a relation to executive pay and saying that we have to start investing and these companies have to invest. And he talked about it during his campaign. He went somewhat silent about it after he became president. And I think that's probably, I don't know this for sure, but it's probably because his advisor said, hey, you better hold it on this stuff because you don't want to be the president that is seen as being responsible for crashing the stock market. And so unfortunately, buybacks have been at record levels under Biden. There were about, for S&P 500 companies, about 800 billion in 2018 after the Trump tax cuts. And everybody knew that the companies were going to use that money to do buybacks, except the Democrats were largely saying that's a bad thing, I think partly influenced by the work that I had done. They had what they called hashtag GOP tax scam led by Schumer, who hates buybacks, has said they should be abolished, by the way. And they were saying that that's what's going to be done with this money. The other side was just saying, oh, that's great. It's going to pump up the stock market. But in 2021, first year by the presidency, there was about $860 billion, so about $60 billion more by those companies. And this past year, over $900 billion, And it looks like it could even go over a trillion in one year by S&P 500 company. That's an average of $2 billion per company. There is a knowledge of the problem, and people have spoken out against the problem. But it's not. I don't even know if it's a matter of political will. It's a matter of how you move from here to there. Well, that's uh, what I was going to ask. Is there a prescription for weaning us off buyback so the withdrawal is doesn't crash the market? That is very difficult to say. I mean, what I can say is that the way in which the, if you want to call it legislation against buybacks is gone, is now there's a 1% tax on buybacks. And everybody who benefits buybacks is laughing all the way to the bank. They don't care about the 1%. And in fact, it had been proposed, and I thought not very wisely, by Sherrod Brown and Ron Wyden in September of 2021 is 2%. The conservative forces in, in the Biden administration, which I, I like a lot of what they're trying to do with the economy, but in this case, they reduced that to 1%. It was sitting there in their framework at 1%. 
And then in the Inflation Reduction Act, when they wanted to get rid of, I heard this mention at the end when you're talking to Gretchen Morganson, the carried interest, uh, capital gains on carried interest. This is something Democrats have been going after for a long time. She insisted that to get her vote for the Inflation Reduction Act, they take that out and they put the 1% in. So the 1% tax is actually Kirsten Sinema's tax on it. Biden finally, in his State of the Union address, said they want to quadruple this to 4%. Well, it's actually only doubling it from 2% to 4%. I argue in this book called Investing in Innovation, it's coming out, that they maybe should make it 40 or 50%. And then any company that has buybacks should have a banner on its website, obligatory buybacks destroy the middle class, you know, and, you know, they're toxic, basically. And so how do you, how do you get rid of it? I think you could put some limits on them, much more stringent limits. The disclosure, which the SEC has moved toward now, more of that should be done and they should move further in, in that. So, yeah, there could be a gradual shift away from buybacks. Now, the other way of doing it, but it has to be done very consistently, is in in the context of industrial policy, which has now come back. So one of the reasons that I wrote this article on Intel and semiconductors a couple of years ago was because of the CHIPS Act, which is now called the Chips and Science Act, with its $52 billion in subsidies for companies that invest in semiconductor fabrication. And I said, well, that's fine. But the fact is that the companies, including Apple and Intel and others lobbying for this legislation, had done about 20 times that amount, or about $900 billion over the last 10 years in buybacks. Apple doing a big lot of them, Intel doing a lot of them. So why should we let them do that while we give them a subsidy? So in fact, out of the Department of Commerce, there now is a guardrail, one of a number of things that if companies are going to get any of these subsidies, they can't do buyback. Now, how much they enforce it, whether companies will find their way around that is, is another question. So there are ways of targeting certain industries, pharmaceutical industry. Now there's an Inflation Reduction Act. There is the authorization for Medicare to negotiate some drug prices. I think part of those negotiations is buyback stop. <laughs> you don't do buybacks if you're a drug company because that's, you know, that's not what you say you need the profits for. So let's have a discussion of how much profits you need to actually invest in innovation. And let's make sure that you do that. So that's that's one way of doing it on a sectoral basis that I think could, could work. And in fact, a lot of the big buybacks are done by companies that are very profitable in pharma, in tech, in, of course, the banks is another area where you could do this through regulation. So you could hit a lot of any, any critically important yeah. industries, aviation. You say you can't do buybacks. You have yeah. to do innovation. What would you estimate the total amount of stock buybacks since 1982? <laughs> okay. Or whatever base you want to start with. Let's do the last decade. That's probably about $8 trillion over the last decade. About $8 trillion that could have gone into very productive investment in communities throughout yeah. the country. Now, I had a very savvy corporate lawyer once tell me, and he was a shareholder defender as well. He said, whenever I hear a corporation buying back its stock, I think that corporation is mismanaged. So I said, what do you mean? He said, because they have more money than they know how to productively invest or want to. They have more money than they're willing to increase their worker salaries, improve the equity of their pension funds, or to engage in innovation. And if managers don't know what to do with that money, they're mismanaging the company by putting the money into stock buybacks. Yeah. 
Now, the larger question of your research is that these giant companies, these U.S. companies that grew in the USA on the back of their workers, went to Washington for subsidies or bailouts when they were greedy or in trouble, and had the U.S. Marines defend them around the world, are not only disinvesting on a massive scale in the necessities for a productive economy, but they're engaging in the ironic trend that can be called the corporate destruction of capitalism, whose base, in essence, is investment. I agree with everything you just said, yeah, including what this person told you. <laughs> that, that's right. And I, I've often said that when executives say that's all we can do with our money, do buybacks, well, they're not doing the jobs. In fact, it's very rare you'll hear an executive actually put it that way. It's usually the economists who are apologizing for the executives or some Wall Street people right. or Wall Street who, who say that, but they're not doing their jobs. No, the purpose of the corporation is to produce products that are high quality, that we can afford. And to do that, you need to have people who engage in learning processes and know how to you know, get the materials, produce the products, sell the products. And you need productivity coming out of your workforce. And that's what you invest in. You provide them with the machineries or they help to develop the machinery that, that helps you get those innovative products. Out. That's the purpose of the corporation. So the corollary of our exchange here is that while these corporate bosses insist on massive domination of our political economy from Washington to Wall Street, they're not delivering for the economy, for the workers, for the people who are trying to make it through on every day and protect their families and their descendants. In behaving this way, they have reached a historic level of conflict of interest with their own companies, because what they're pursuing is dramatic self-interest and self-enrichment through the stock options. And they don't really care, like the heads of Cisco, that their self-enrichment as corporate executives and the policies that nourish that are basically in conflict with the best interests of the corporation that they're heading. Yeah. You, well, I would say you take it further, which is even scarier. Not only do they not care, they don't know. <laughs> They bought into, they've, they've drunk this shareholder value ideology so deeply, they've imbibed in it to, to such an extent that they, they really believe it. And that's how they got to be where they are, by the way, unless someone comes along and, and says, no, you can't do that. And that's what needs to be done. So it's the kind of people who end up in these positions are, in fact, people who that's what their ability is. is and that's what their incentive is, is to pump up the stock price. And they really believe that that's economic performance, because that's what they're rewarded for. And of course, even if, as we say, you know, the after five years, a company that's just done huge buybacks now no longer has innovative products and its stock price can no longer be sustained. This has happened with the oil companies, by the way, and now they're doing buybacks, but they had to stop doing buybacks. ExxonMobil used to be the biggest repurchaser before Apple, 22 billion a year. Then the, the oil prices went down and couldn't do buybacks so it had to stop because it didn't have the money. Now that's up, they're going to do them. But, you know, they'll just keep doing this and they'll put people at the top whose job it is to just pump up the stock price and they'll pay them lavishly for it. And everybody will say, oh, that's great because that's, you know, that's what the economy is all about. Stock market price performance, stock market performance. On a more perilous scale here to follow up what we're conversing about is that in their dominant power, these giant corporations becoming fewer and bigger by the decade, are leaving our country defenseless. They are not 
defending our country and preparing our country for pandemics. The drug companies is just interested in more profits and the hospital yep. chain. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. They're, they're basically leaving us defenseless by pushing a war machine and empire. They're diverting public budgets overseas to destroy other countries that don't present a threat to us. And they're not preparing the country and they're not defending the people of this country. Now, this all comes down to, Bill, the conundrum of democracy. If in the final analysis, a country is saved by its people, not by its rulers, how can we develop an educational process with citizens all over the country? And we can start with the 1% of interested citizens. In order to develop an informed public constituency to begin anticipating and feeding back the concerns of present day Americans and their posterity. Yeah, well, you mentioned the book that I have coming out. I have a part of that, which is start governing the corporation, not just to stock buybacks and to put people on running corporations who understand what we're talking about and who understand the need to invest. And that's why I call it investing in innovation change the tax code, but also to invest in the careers of people. People need productive jobs. And in an advanced economy, you to be in the middle class, you need to be productive. You need to have productive jobs over four or five decades of your life and enough to support you in retirement. You know, that's a huge challenge, but it can be done if you invest. And, and, and you go back to education. It's not by accident that we have all these student loans because precisely the time when you needed to upgrade the education of the labor force in the 1980s, the United States made it much more expensive to get education, not only in terms of what you had to pay for it, but for the extortionate price you had to pay for the loans. And one of the reasons for that, one of the reasons the United States was able to get away with that is because actually the Asian economies educated a substantial proportion of their labor forces. We had, particularly the Immigration Act of 1990, gave companies in the United States access to Asian labor, which I am not at all opposed to. I think, you know, the globalization of labor is not a, a problem in my view, but it's an opportunity to bring the world together. But in the process, the companies then said, hey, we don't need to worry about the government supporting the education system to have the computer scientists, the, you know, the, the engineers, et cetera. We can get everybody we want by people, and often they would be the people enrolled in the graduate programs in the United States from abroad. And so a huge portion of the labor force was neglected. I have a, a book, it's on the Institute for New Economic Thinking website, five working papers on what happened to African-American employment after the over the last four or five decades, how African-Americans were actually as blue collar workers getting into the middle class in the 60s and 70s, but then got left behind. And then what happened to blacks happened to whites. And then we end up with Donald Trump. <laughs> no surprise. We have downward mobility. So this is all of a piece. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, if you don't have upward socioeconomic mobility, you don't have a hopeful middle class and you have people are very vulnerable to demagogues. To get an upwardly mobile middle class, large corporations in critical industries have to invest in the labor force, give people secure employment, enable them to make decent standards of living, and they can do it if they're not financialized. They can do it if they actually allocate the resources in a way that's investing in innovation, and buybacks are just the most obvious antithesis to that. 
And that's, that is not the only thing I focus on, but it is when you see the buybacks, you know that there's going to be a lot of other bad behavior. They're going to be suppressing wages to get profits up to do more distributions to shareholders. They're going to be price gouging, do this, avoiding taxes, et cetera. So it's all, all related to this vicious cycle, basically, of that, what I call downsize and distribute. And you get inequality that quite logically results from that. After the families in this country are poor. So yeah. that's how these capitalist bosses capitalist bosses delivered for the American people, and they exported millions of jobs to Asia for cheap labor and hollowed out communities. And they're not held accountable, and they're buying and renting politicians. It all comes back to whether we can develop a system of public civic education in community after community with a sense of urgency and focus to control Congress, which is the pivot in terms of turning our country around due to the enormous authority of Congress under the Constitution and the fact that we all know their names, 530 men and women who are using our sovereign power and misexercising it as they assign that power to fewer and fewer giant corporations over the political economy. So it all comes down to the educated small number of people All great change in our country has come from a tiny percent of the people representing broader public opinion and knowing what they're talking about and focusing on the decision-making arenas, whether it's the legislature or the courts. Anything you can do, Bill, to clarify the message so that people's eyes don't glaze and they lose their patience for concentration on the most essential futures that are coming at them. Yeah, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. And that's why we do the work. But it's, you know, it's on the other side, we don't just make these statements. We we back it up with really understanding what's going on in these companies. And and I think what we need is people to in the labor movement in Congress. There's lots of people who are and in, in, in states who are very sympathetic to the arguments we're making here, but they have to do themselves do the work to understand these arguments and figure out how to convey them. And that might be just 1% of the people who do this, but that's a lot of people who have to understand what's wrong and have to figure out how to message that in a world where it's very hard to, you know, there's all kinds of messaging going on and we got to get this message through. And then we have to conclude, we're out of time. We've been talking to Bill Lazonic, former professor at Harvard, Columbia, University of Massachusetts, prolific author, and one of the clearest insightful analysts the dynamics of power in our political economy. Before we leave, Bill, can you tell people how they can reach you for more information? You can just send me an email at william.lazonic at gmail.com. That's the easiest way. And uh, yeah, that's probably just get in touch with me. And as long as it's not too overwhelming, I respond to people. Provide feedback, listeners. I know this could feel overwhelming to you, but remember, We have to reduce all this to the virtues and vices of human beings, which haven't changed since time immemorial. If we clarify at that basis, then we can build the empirical reality and the public policies for a more just society and world. Thank you very much, Bill. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. It's great talking with you. We've been speaking with William Lazonic. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Now, before we take our leave, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, June 2, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. 
A record $279 million whistleblower award issued by the Securities and Exchange Commission earlier this month stemmed from a bribery case against telecommunications company Ericsson. That's according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. The award from the SEC's Cash for Tips program was related to the $1.1 billion settlement the Swedish company reached with U.S. authorities in 2019 over allegations it conspired to make illegal payments to win business in five countries in violation of U.S. anti-bribery laws. The SEC didn't name the enforcement action underlying the award and didn't identify the tipster in keeping with whistleblower protection rules that prevent the regulator from divulging this information to the public. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulkyberg. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. And that's our show. I want to thank our guest again, William Lazonic. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out now for you podcast listeners. Stay tuned for some bonus material we call the wrap-up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to capitolhillcitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiowire.com. Post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreaders, Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producers, Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager, Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. You can see from our discussion in the past hour how important Congress is to a resolution of the consumer dollars that are turned into trillions of dollars of wasteful stock buybacks. So get an issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen by going to CapitalHillCitizen.com so you can become an active Capitol Hill Citizen. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, we continue our conversation with Professor William Lozanik, who goes into more inside baseball detail about stock buybacks and how management extracts value from their companies. There's a difference also between dividends and buybacks. If I'm holding shares in a company, I actually don't want them to be spending 100% of their profits on dividends because I want them to be reinvesting so that when I sell the shares in the future, if and when, they'll have a higher stock price because they have new competitive products on the market. Buybacks, they're the opposite. You're rewarding shares, I call them share sellers, not shareholders. Or They're people who are selling their shares. And they're people who have the information and are the, in business of timing the buying and selling of shares. And these are what I call the value extracting insiders, the top executives with their stock-based pay, which makes up the bulk of their pay. They are also the value extracting outsiders, who I call the hedge fund activists, who, again, through SEC deregulation, gained a huge amount of power to go into companies with less than 1% of the shares and rip those companies apart. GE is a good example with a guy named Nelson Peltz. 
And this is what's happening at Apple too, except Apple isn't being ripped apart because it has so much profits that it can spend, last year it was 89 billion on buybacks. Okay, so, but those insiders and outsiders are also helped out by the enablers, which are the institutional shareholders that want to get a piece of the pie of what the hedge fund activists are getting, the shareholder activists are getting when they go into these companies. And they also get their assets under management and they line up their proxy votes. And they're able to, again, with less than 1% of the shares, go in and determine who's on the boards and put their own people on the boards and you're talking about institutional shareholders, pension funds, Fidelity, yeah, Vanguard. Yeah, pension funds and mutual funds, basically. And that's right. all laid out so, in the book of mine, uh, Predatory Value Extraction, so. which came out about three years ago. Second, Professor Lazonic tells us about how the company Intel stifled innovation with its preoccupation with pumping up stock prices with buybacks. So I can just refer to readers to a recent study I did about two years ago on Intel and the decline of its position in semiconductor fabrication and global competition with TSMC and Samsung Electronics. And that's because they had a guy at the top, a guy named Swan, who was a financial engineer, basically, who was just pumping up the stock price with tens of billion dollars of buybacks. Now, in the case of Intel, as is in the case of Apple, it doesn't mean they didn't have money for other things. But it means that they have people who are in what I call strategic control, positions of allocating resources, who don't understand and are not there to understand what you need to do to invest in the very difficult innovation that you have to get to get where they got to in the past. And in semiconductors, you have to get to seven nanometer, five nanometer practices, and you have to get high yields, and Intel can't do it. Intel recognized this about two years ago, and they brought in a production guy who Pat Delsinger, who is there now, and he stopped the buybacks. Actually, it's an interesting case because he, he actually came and said he took the job with the board. He said, no more buybacks. So he's not ideologically opposed to buybacks, but he saw that running the company to give money away to people who wanted to sell the shares was not going to, to pay off. Third, Professor Lozanik explains how much money Carl Icahn and Warren Buffett made on Apple because Apple kept using their profits to buy back their stock. Now, Icon, in a, he held on to the stock for about 30 months and then got inside information that they were losing market share in China and dumped the stock for a $2 billion gain. Not one cent, again, of what Icon spent on buying those shares went to Apple. But during those two full years, 2014, 2015, when Icon held the shares, Apple spent $45 billion one year, $30 billion the next year on buybacks. And that helped him to make that $2 billion gain. I actually calculated that if he knew exactly the right day when the stock market would hit a peak, he could have made more like $4 billion. But he, even he did not know that. But at some point, he said, OK, that was the name of the game. Now, the other thing I should say is that I was mentioning that Carl Icahn sold his shares. When he was selling his shares, Warren Buffett from Berkshire Hathaway, with the money, all the Berkshire Hathaway money made, from basically employing lots of people. Berkshire Hathaway has about 383,000 employees in its operating businesses, and that's where they're making their money. But they're making so much money that Buffett goes and he takes the money and he puts it into Apple stock. Now, he put over $36 billion into Apple stock, about 10 times what Icon did between 2016 and 2018. Again, not one cent of that money went to Apple. It was just money he bought on the market. He's about quadrupled that investment in Apple shares about $120 billion in gains 
He still holds most of the shares. He sold some of them. What does he do for Apple? Nothing, except to encourage them to do buybacks. So when, when he was holding the shares, Apple started doing 74 billion, 84 billion, 89 billion, now maybe 90 billion coming up. And what does Buffett say about that? He's quoted as saying in May of 2018, I love buybacks. Share of Apple can go from 5%, which he had by buying all that Apple stock, to 6 or 7% without our having to lay out a dime. Now, what a damning statement that is. Now, Ralph asked Professor Lozanik about his research funded by the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Tell us about that institute briefly. Okay, well, basically, actually, I run a nonprofit called the Academic Industry Research Network, which is 501c3 nonprofit. It's a small research organization, and we get funding from the Institute for New Economic Thinking, which was originally started by Open Society Foundations, or money came from George Soros in 2010. They now don't have a connection, from my understanding, with Open Society Foundations, but fund basically research on new economic thinking. And it's been a very important organization in terms of finding funding for the research for me and, and the people who work with me. So most of the research, not all of it, but most of it is we get funding from the Institute for New Economic Thinking. We also get funding from a very good organization called the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. I'm actually getting on a plane to go to a meeting with them in a few hours and and also from some various types of European sources. But basically, I was a professor at the UMass system before that at Harvard and Columbia, but I for the last number of years, I've been running this research organization and getting this research out, particularly on companies like Cisco, Apple, Intel, etc. Finally, Ralph asked Professor Lazonic about the tax implications of stock buybacks. Bill, I've got to get some factual material on our record. So let me ask you, when companies do stock buybacks and they spend a lot of money, is this money deductible under the tax code? No. So basically, yeah, there's a lot of this information about this because some people say that buybacks are they're, they're more tax efficient. This is the term. OK, first of all, dividends are generally taxed at the same rate you pay for capital gains if they're qualified dividends, which are most dividends. So uh, there are people are writing about this saying dividends are taxed at the ordinary tax rate, which which is not. not no, no, right. no. That's not what I'm yeah. asking. Yeah, I understand. I'm saying that. When Apple Corporation spends billions buying back their stock. Can they deduct that expense no, 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 to lower is, their taxes? No, no. Th this is done after taxes. So this is out of out of earnings, basically, or out of okay. or take. But okay. they do take on debt. They do other things. There are other tax dodges related to this, partly because the way they expense stock options and stock awards, which are boosted by by buybacks on their financial statements, is not what the executives actually get. It's a whole other topic. But all the pay data out there on what executives get paid is not what they actually get paid. It's a phony measure of coming from bad economics of what they call fair value. That actually has some tax implications that go in favor of corporations, but not the buybacks per se. And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. The Automotive News website, Jalopnik, reports that a whistleblower has turned over 100 gigabytes of, quote, Tesla secrets to German media. 
These files contain, quote, more than 2,400 self-acceleration complaints and more than 1,500 braking function problems, including 139 cases of unintentional emergency braking and 383 reported phantom stops resulting from false collision warnings. The number of crashes is more than 1,000. While National Democrats dither and cave to outrageous Republican demands on the debt ceiling, the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party has delivered on an expansive progressive agenda. In the current session, with only a single vote majority in the upper house, Common Dreams reports that they have passed bills to mandate 20 weeks of paid family and medical leave, legalized recreational cannabis, and made school meals free for public and charter students. They also passed a bill codifying Roe v. Wade, established legal protections for transgender youth, set a livable minimum wage for Uber and Lyft drivers, and approved right to repair legislation. While not all of these will be signed into law, it is clear that Minnesota is setting the bar for Democratic-controlled state legislatures throughout the country and putting Congress to shame. A new piece in The Lever covers, quote, the $20 billion scam at the heart of Medicare Advantage. The article detailers how insurers are manipulating the Medicare privatization scheme and, quote, milking massive profits from systemic overbilling and kneecapping modest Biden proposals to stop the scheme. Rep. Rokana, responding to this article, advocated for his, quote, Save Medicare Act, co-sponsored by Reps. Mark Pocan and Jen Tchaikovsky, to ban private insurers from, quote, profiting off the Medicare brand. NPR reports that the White House has unveiled its plan to combat rising anti-Semitism in the United States, and in a major victory for left-wing anti-Zionists, they did not adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which would gag criticism of Israel. In response, Palestine Legal tweeted, quote, After months of Israel advocacy groups calling on the White House to adopt the distorted IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, today, even the staunchly pro-Israel Biden administration declined to do so. Why? Because IHRA is wrong, useless, and clearly unconstitutional. A leaked document from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, published in The Intercept, expresses frustration that the budget of populist left-wing Mexican President López Obrador, commonly known as AMLO, prioritizes social spending for the poor in Mexico above U.S. interests in our southern neighbor. The document reads, quote, President López Obrador's federal budget for 2023 gives priority to social spending and signature infrastructure projects rather than the investments needed to address bilateral issues with the U.S., such as migration, security, and trade. In other words, the military-industrial complex is not content with monopolizing the budget of this country and feel that they are more entitled to the tax money of other countries than their own citizens. 60 Minutes reports that Raytheon, a major military contractor, has been scamming the Defense Department via, quote, inflated prices for planes, submarines, and missiles. Shay Assad, a negotiator who has been on both sides of these procurement debates, drew attention to an oil pressure switch that cost $328, but was purchased by the Pentagon for over $10,000. When asked what accounts for that huge difference, Assad answered, gouging. What else can account for it? The Philadelphia Inquirer reports that, quote, a judge dismissed all charges against a former city police officer named Darren Cardos, accused of participating in the beating of 28-year-old mother, Rikia Young, during the 2020 protests. A key reason why this case was dismissed hinged on the fact that a witness, another police officer, did not appear in court despite being subpoenaed, making it, quote, impossible to try Cardos. Quote, prosecutors, quote, immediately vowed to refile the case and bring it back to court. 
Two high-profile former Democratic representatives have joined the Global Advisory Council at the cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase. These are Tim Ryan, the former congressman who was defeated by J.D. Vance in his 2022 bid for U.S. Senate in Ohio, and Sean Patrick Maloney, another former Democratic congressman and head of the DCCC, who many hold responsible for the Democrats' slim loss of the House in that election cycle. Coinbase has previously run afoul of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and is likely banking on the political clout of these former members to navigate a possible regulatory crackdown on crypto. The revolving door just keeps spinning. Finally, in a small but meaningful win for workers, Labor Notes reports that the Biden NLRB has restored, quote, the rights of union representatives to use heated language, including occasional profanity, during arguments with management. Union officials were barred from using such language by a Trump-era NLRB decision. The article breaks down the three major implications of this ruling. One, employers can no longer claim that the law allows them to discipline representatives for, quote, lack of civility. Two, vigorous debate and salty language must be tolerated, including allegations that managers are not telling the truth. And three, picket line rhetoric does not put strikers at risk. And to that, we say, fuck yeah. This has been In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us again on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stay.